Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with the lockdown going on, there are concerns about flooding along the beach strip in Hamilton. What is the magnitude of the problem and what are we going to do to fix it? Well, we'll talk about that. Also, our weekly discussion with employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg about employment concerns during the pandemic and what's going to be happening with the CERB payments. And a union representing thousands of Ontario healthcare workers is calling for three urgent investigation into the number of deaths in long-term care facilities due to COVID-19. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. With the lockdown going on, there are concerns about, well, flooding on the beach strip. Now, this is not a news story every spring. It seems to be almost a common occurrence. But uh, now that you're being told that you have to stay in your home and there's not a whole lot of uh, movement that are around here, a lot of the area residents are very concerned, first of all, about the magnitude of the problem and the possible solutions. Uh, that area right down by the beach strip, of course, is Chad, Chad Collins' ward, uh, it's Ward 5, and uh, Chad joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Chad. How are you guys holding up these days? I'm doing well, Bill. How about you and your family? Same old, same old. You know, we're locked up here and uh, just living the dream, but uh, we're waiting for this and uh, anticipating some nicer weather. Uh, Got to ask you about that. I want to get into the flooding thing in just a second, but we were checking in with all the councillors about what you're hearing from your constituents on that. With your expanded ward, of course, since the last election, you, that includes Battlefield Park. It includes part of the Waterfront Trail. Uh, are people anxious to get on there? Are they being compliant with the regulations the city's put up? What are you hearing? Oh, people are itching to get back outside. They're anxious to use local parks. They're anxious to get back on the waterfront trail specifically. And I think people are just looking for some semblance of what nor- the new normal is. And, you know, we're, we're, I think most people are tired of being cooped up in their houses or their apartments for the last uh, six, seven, eight weeks. And, um, you know, it's, it's a stressful time for everyone. People are anxious. You know, some people are, are without work right now. And so, it's a it's a scary time, and I think some of the amenities that you just referenced in terms of whether it be parks or trails or other things offer some people some relief. And so the sooner that our medical community advises that, you know, those places in our society are, are, are open for business again, I think the better. I mean, there are some tragic stories that we've talked about uh, with the, the long-term care facilities and others, mm-hmm. uh, and any death is one too many, of course, because of this virus. But uh, it, it's it's got to be, as, as a counselor, to see the way that the city has handled this and the protocol that's been established by Dr. Richardson and, and others, Paul Johnson and other folks that are involved in, in that particular aspect of this, that we really seem to have mitigated a lot of the damage. I know we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean we're not talking about mm-hmm. this in the past tense by any stretch of the imagination. But the fact that it's not as severe as it had been anticipated i think is really a testimony to not just the the people that have ad- advocated for this and done what they're supposed to do with the social distancing etc but the protocol that was put in place in the first place yeah i think uh, you you nailed it there bill in terms of you know the team the emergency operations center which includes our senior leadership team the city manager as well as some of our senior staff as well and, and of course dr richardson and and her staff have done a tremendous job in terms of putting putting a blueprint in place to assist the community in in what are you know just we, we just haven't seen this before and so I think we're we're all learning as we go and um, and that team was quick to respond to, you know we watched some of the things that were transpiring in in other parts of the world and then of course you know some of the missteps south of the border we're learning from those mistakes and um, and I think by and large our community has responded um, they've by and large respected those restrictions. And they've uh, they've complied, and um, you know we're taking that wait and see approach, and I think the results are good as a result. We, we've seen um, you know we've seen numbers here in, in our community that are far better than other places in Ontario, and, and then of course in other parts of of uh, 
of the of the country as well. So that's uh, that that's good to see, and we certainly we don't want to jinx our our good work to date. And so we, we just hope that people continue to comply and be patient. And you know, as the as the mayor and or the the premier or the prime minister provide their their daily and sometimes weekly updates. We just look for that glimmer of hope that certain things are going to open soon and that we'll be safe to reintegrate back into society. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just how folks react, although it's supposed to be kind of a chilly, wintry weekend this weekend, so maybe mm-hmm. we're not going to see the crowds out at, at uh, some of these places. But it's coming. We know it's coming, and hopefully things, as you say, we're going to continue along this track. Okay, let's, let's talk about the beachfront. This is kind of, I know that you've always had a soft spot, as long as you've been a counselor for this area, for that particular area. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a, a great area back before your time and my time, of course. A lot of people loved living down there. There was an amusement yep. park down there. It had some hard times, uh, some economic uh, challenges, shall we say. Uh, the city policies, and, and you were involved in many of these, Chad, I think have gone a long way towards the revitalization down there. But this, this flooding is an ongoing problem and has been for years now. Yeah, it's a historical problem. And, um, you know, it, it, it dates back to the time when it was a cottage community. And, you know, at one point in time, there was a, a train that ran along the shores of the lake and it dropped mm-hmm. cottagers off to that area. It was kind of the Muskoka of the early 1900s. And those uh, cottages were then later converted into residential homes. And uh, between the war years, it essentially became a residential community instead of a cottage community. And um, and it's been thriving ever since that time. And and it's certainly it, it's had its challenges over time. And um, certainly flooding has been one of them. And through the 1920s and then the 40s and even then into the 70s, we've seen you know peak periods and years where the neighborhood has been flooded and. And in the 40s, you'll see accounts of people who are using canoes up and down some of the side streets, kind of using it um, as a recreational time to enjoy the flooding and the impacts that it had on the community. And then in the 70s, people were building small boardwalks from their front doors up the street so they could get to their cars and to, the, and to dry sidewalks. And so a lot's changed, obviously, in the last 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, tech technology-wise, you know, we now have the equipment to try to deal with some of these things, and we now have the knowledge. We, we know that climate change is having an impact not just on the beach community, but on the broader community and across the world. We're seeing rising water levels. And so we're, um, early, in the early 2000s, we undertook a, a flood study at that point in time to deal with what were, I think we would consider the old Lake Ontario water levels. And we worked with the Ministry of Transportation to build a a very large pump on Grafton Avenue, and, and that pump has served us well in in, in mitigating. It's, we will never eliminate this problem, but in mitigating the the rising lake levels, um, it assisted in helping us with several of the side streets. And essentially, what we're looking at right now is a, a plan that will will do the same. We undertook a flood study last year. That study calls for another one or two pumps that deals with the new norm um, as it relates to lake ontario water levels and over the next year or two we'll go through a design process we're required to go through an environmental assessment process and then of course there's the whole issue of funding those pumps and they're they're fairly expensive uh, piece of infrastructure the one that we built in the early 2000s was close to 10 million dollars and we cost share that with the province and um, we're probably looking at you know, I'm just guessing now, Bill, that those prices have obviously increased, and we're probably looking at something that's in the 15 million range or higher. At least, and we're and we're hoping that, of course, the province will again contribute to the infrastructure improvements there. So there's a lot going on. We're we're looking at infrastructure improvements that again will help mitigate but not eliminate those lake levels. 
And then, of course, there's the whole education campaign. As you referenced, we've seen a lot of renewal on the beach, and a, and a lot of new residents have moved in from other parts of southern Ontario and other parts of the province. And it becomes an education process um, as it relates to, you know, informing people that this isn't an infrastructure issue where we have sewers failing or or something different. This is essentially a historical problem that we've tried to deal with, and we we've um, we're looking for ways and means in which to mitigate those impacts. But for a lot of new residents, they move in. You know, the beach offers a lot of recreational amenities. It's strategically located there on the QEW, and so access is tremendous to all parts of southern Ontario. And when they see their first, they're through their first spring, and they see water in their basement or their crawl space, or even coming up through the ground, it's it's essentially in people's, in some cases, in their backyards or at the on their streets at their front door. It's um, it's concerning, and so. For us, education and communication is the key to try to deal with the new residents who are moving in. And of course, for those longtime beach residents, this isn't something that's new to them. And they've found ways over the years and over the decades to cope with it. It's interesting. And I mean, you're right. This is really just a a natural situation and circumstance here. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. for anybody who's been down there, I mean, you've got the bay on one side of you and you've got Lake Ontario on the other. And it's beautiful and it's picturesque. Uh, but you're surrounded by water, so it's inevitable. I know a lot of the houses there, Chad, don't even have basements uh, because Correct. when they were constructed some years ago, they thought, you know, there's no sense in having one here because of the way the the, the land here is it's saturated, basically. Uh, but the thing that I think is really in, intriguing about this, and we've talked about this in the past uh, six or seven years, mm-hmm. as you say, the number of people that are investing in that area now, uh, it's uh, it's a high-end area. I mean, they're building houses that are at considerable cost uh, because mm-hmm. of the waterfront properties, and, and they're all being impacted by this at the same time. Now, how, how do they deal with that on an individual basis? I mean, you know, we're, I think many of us are familiar with things like sump pumps in our basements, et cetera, mm-hmm. like that, but is that enough in, in a circumstance like this? I think, well, if, you know, for many, Bill, it's as good as it's going to get. The sump pumps provide some relief, and they're they're constantly running, and I you know, if you read Matthew's article in Today's Spectator, it, it's essentially a way of life through the spring months and well into the yeah. summer now with the, with the lake levels. So you'll see, if for anyone who drives down the beach and takes a peek down some of the side streets or you just drive along the boulevard, you'll see water lines across the, the sidewalk and, and onto the road. And, and essentially that water is making its way from people's basements into the storm sewer. And then, of course, we have our own larger pumps that people will see down there, and we're pumping that water um, from those sewers and from the road to the sewage treatment plant. And we actually have sucker trucks as well that are helping with um, some of that relief as well. And, and that's a 24-7 operation. And with these new water levels, and we've seen peak years in the past, the late 2000s weren't too bad. Um, the late 90s, I know that when I first started, I had a couple of very challenging years on certain streets. And then, of course, the other decades that I referenced um, we've seen peak periods, and they spike, and then they're gone for three, four, five years. Unfortunately, now what we've seen with the new plan that's come from the International Joint Commission, which is a U.S. and Canadian body, their plan tries to assist the, the, those communities on the St. Lawrence that have experienced flooding. And the, the result of that is we're seeing higher levels for longer periods of time, not just here in Hamilton, but along all the shores of Lake Ontario. And it's having a, a big impact on communities in fact, you'll see a lot of a lot of uh, U.S. communities are rallying against that plan and against that organization and trying to get their government to change, essentially to provide them more relief than, than those down the St. Lawrence, and it's become quite a political battle. 
Well, and we've so seen that on the news. That, sorry, Bill. I, say I, that I said we've Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I say that in the context of just saying that it's not an easy issue to deal with. And, um, and everyone's trying to understand what the new normal is. So we've seen these levels now for three or four years. They've been record levels. They've been breaking some of the historical data that we've seen going back to the 1920s. And we're now trying to understand whether or not, um, you know, what kind of mitigation is going to help us on a temporary basis. And then long term, what kind of investments do we need to make in order to ensure that um, we're trying to provide the most protection we can to the most amount of people? Well, and therein lies the concern. I, I was going to say we've seen a lot of this coverage from the, the, the Toronto television stations, of course, on things like Toronto Island and, and the beaches over mm-hmm. the east end of the city uh, and the flooding and the, and the damage that that's caused. And we've seen it here in Hamilton. I mean, the West Harbor is still mm-hmm. closed in some areas, and it's not just because of COVID. It's because of the destruction from higher water levels. And you've seen Correct. that in your area on the waterfront trail in some of these areas. It, it looks as if this is the new normal. Are you confident that uh, that we're on the government's radar when it comes to mitigation efforts? Well, we we are. Uh, thankfully, so to date, we have been. We received uh, $17 million, if memory serves me right, from the federal government as part of their disaster relief program. And it, it, it'll mean that we're, we're forced to make some changes on our trail system. It, it may mean in some areas in the West Harbor that you just referenced, Bill, that we're actually raising the trail off the ground. And so it's not susceptible to damages on, a, on an annual basis. On the on the lakefront and in my beach community, we're probably going to see over time the hardening of the shoreline. So right now it's it's sand, and we have some of those legs that go out, arms that go out into the, the lake, where when we see those very large rocks, and they're almost uh, yeah. little islands that are built out um, from the shore, and that helps with erosion control. But what we're going to start to see is those same types of armor stone and large rocks placed on the shore to prevent and limit. Um, the amount of sand that is drawn back out into the lake. And, and that's in strategic points, and we already know where those locations are, it will help us to mitigate the impact on the trail system. And so we'll see less of a natural look than we have in the past. It'll be more of a hard infrastructure that we see on the, on the shoreline. And from an aesthetics perspective, it certainly doesn't look as nice, but I think it's the best we can do understanding that these types of um, interruptions, service interruptions, whether it be on the trail or, or even for some people, their personal property into Stony Creek, um, these are the types of changes that we need to invest in. And uh, thankfully, uh, your question alluded to support, we, we have received support to date from the federal government on, on those initiatives and with those initiatives. Well, I hope it's ongoing as well because this is a problem that's not going to go away. Chad, thanks so much for the update. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll stay in touch as this uh, develops over the next few months, I guess, really. Yep. Take care. Thanks, thanks, Bill. Chad Collins, the City Council for Ward 5. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of uh, talk, a lot of concern about what's going on with COVID-19 and, and the evolution of uh, the programs that are being put in place for this. Uh, we've heard almost on a daily basis from the Prime Minister and the Premier here in Ontario uh, about uh, initiatives that they're undertaking to try to help us get through this. And uh, there have been top-ups, of course, to salaries. We know the SIR benefit uh, has been out there. Those checks are supposedly uh, coming out now. As I know a lot of people have already received them and uh, assistance for other people. But if, if, in fact, we are going to start opening the doors again, and the Premier says that's going to be happening uh, relatively soon, uh, there's a, a number of issues about employment. You know, if you were told, hey, don't come to work because we've had to shut our doors in a restaurant or any number of other instances that were under that order, uh, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get called back to work. Or is there? 
And how's that going to happen? And, and what are the implications and what are your rights as an employee? Which is why we are uh, doing our next feature. We've done this over the last couple of weeks and uh, getting some great response to it. Uh, we bring our good friend Andrew Goldberg on. Andrew is an employment lawyer and associate at San Fuero Tubarkin LLP. Employmentlaw.ca is the webpage to go to. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. My pleasure. Good morning. We had uh, some controversy over the weekend. I don't want to drag you into the politics of it, but uh, we had uh, conservative leader, opposition leader Andrew Scheer, uh, looking at the CERB program that the government is instituting right now and saying, well, it's going to be a disincentive, and people are not going to want to go back to work. They're just going to say, no, I'm good right here. Don't bother calling me. Uh, I don't want to get you into whether or not it's effective or not, but, uh, and I, I, by the way, I totally disagree with this premise. I don't think Canadians are like that. You're going to find one or two slackers, but you're going to find those, I guess, in just about every workplace. But it does raise a lot of questions about how this is going to roll out. I mean, if if a restaurateur or somebody that owns a salon or anything like that that's under lockdown right now, uh, as they open the doors again and decide, okay, here's the, what we have to do, uh, things like social distancing and some other measures we're going to have to put in place right now, is it a fairly good expectation that uh, if they had a staff of, say, 40, just picking a number out of here, Andrew, they're not going to call all 40 people back at once, are they? Well, I mean, that's highly dependent on the situation. I can't really speak to um, each individual business. Um, I I'd imagine that there'd be a ramp-up period simply because, and again, this is very speculative, but even if uh, Canada opens uh, businesses up and says, listen, you know, restaurants can be back in, in business, let's open the doors, I can't imagine that it'll just be a free-for-all back to how things used to be. I, I imagine in restaurants, there, you know, maybe a lot of restaurants, like living downtown Toronto, there are a lot of restaurants that have tables very close. It's like they pack these tables into oh, yeah. the restaurants. It's almost like uncomfortable in a lot of ways. But, you know, restaurants that do that where you're two feet away from the people next to you, I can imagine that, you know, there'd have to be kind of, um, they'd have to lessen the the customer load that they'd allow in and then yeah. therefore they'd probably have to lessen the amount of servers they have in the restaurant as well to like proportionately. So I, I can't imagine by any stretch that most businesses will be calling everyone back at once. I'd, I'd imagine it comes in, in waves. So th- there's that anticipation and we don't know exactly who's going to get called in. But to that point, uh, there are some options now for employees that have been sitting at home right now. Uh, maybe some of them are collecting the CERB benefit, and, and, and maybe there are one or two that said, look, it, for the time being, I, I think I want to hang out. And it may not just because they're lazy. I don't, I don't buy that at all. But schools are not open yet, so if you've been sitting at home looking after the kids, uh, getting that quality family time, and all of a sudden your business is reopening, and you, are you allowed as an employee to say to your employer, look, I, I want to pass, I, I still want to work for you, but not right now. While I've got this CERB benefit, I want to stay home because I can't get daycare so I can still look after my kids, at least until this benefit runs out, then we can talk about employment. Do, do they have a right to have that conversation? Well, I mean, the child care aspect of things is kind of entirely separate from the CERB benefit portion sure. of it. So, you know, as you said, I'd like to think as well that most Canadians are not just uh, disincentivized to return to work because of the CERB. I mean, I hope most people appreciate that as a country, we need to get the economy going. I think the risk there is, you have to keep in mind, CERB is $2,000 a month, and there are many people that, you know, are low-earning people. So if you're making marginally more than $2,000 per month, 
you know, I, I wouldn't say these people are necessarily lazy or slackers. I wouldn't say that there's a huge amount of these people, but I think it'd be natural for it to cross your mind to say, well, I'm only going to make five or 600 bucks more a month if I go back to work. I'm now doing nothing and getting 2000 So I can imagine at points that that is an issue. I mean, it remains to be seen how big of an issue. Um, if you simply want to stay home because you can get the SERB benefit, that absolutely is not going to fly. If you go to your employer and you say, yeah, I know you're recalling me back to work, um, but I'm getting the SERB benefit, I'm comfortable, and, and I'd like to wait this out a bit longer, uh, an employer can treat that as you abandoning your job. Now, the ah, second okay. point of your question, uh, the family care obligations, right? So your family status, your family care obligations, that's protected under the Human Rights Code. So if you, if you cannot get other child care arrangements um, and you need to be at home, uh, an employer essentially must allow you to do that. But, you, but that individual needs to keep in mind that they need to make attempts to uh, accommodate the situation as well. Like you need to go out and see if you're married or you have a significant other, if, if there's someone that can watch your children part of the time, you need to canvas those uh, possibilities before going back to your employer. Now, now that's going to be very hard. Don't get me wrong. Like that might be a low bar. There aren't babysitters. There aren't daycare. So there aren't that many things to canvas. But you at least have to do your job to see, is there anything you can do? If not, then employer must allow you to remain uh, at home. That's an interesting point. Uh, I'm going to go back to your example. You mentioned the $2,000 a month benefit, uh, and, and supposedly you, your anticipated salary, or maybe the salary before they shut everything down was, say, 25 and you figured for the sake of four or 500 bucks. But if you've got kids at home, uh, you're going to say, well, look, at, yeah, I, I go back to work. I'm going to make that 2500 but you know, it's going to get eaten up by childcare because now I've got to pay somebody to look after the kids. But the financial argument, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surmising from what you're saying here, doesn't hold water with the employer. I mean, if you, you, know, you want the job you, and you'll get daycare, that's, that's your problem as to how much you're paying for the daycare. Uh, but if you don't want the job, well, then I'm going to go back to somebody else. Yeah, and something to keep in mind as well is if you're on CERB or you're getting EI, um, so CERB especially, CERB is, you qualify for CERB because you lost your job due to COVID, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you originally were put on a temporary layoff or something like that um, because of COVID, the company shut down or laid off a whole bunch of people, and that's why you're getting it, and now you're being recalled back to work and you're just simply saying, hey, no, forget it, I'm going to remain at home, then it's possible that, and I think highly likely that an indiv that individual no longer qualifies for CERB for the next eligibility period because the reason for their layoff is now no longer because of COVID. They've been recalled to work. They can go back. It's now a voluntary choice that they're making, assuming, um, again, like this is all premised on the fact that they don't have kids that they need to watch, right? So like, yeah, those are kind yeah. of two separate issues. But if it's simply just to get the CERB and you're, you're more happy with that situation, uh, the government, if you apply for CERB and you get CERB, the government very well and very likely might claw that back uh, come tax time or whenever they get around to reconciling these things. That's a great point, and you reminded us about that when this whole program started to roll out a couple of weeks ago now, that uh, if you decide I'm going to play fast and loose with this, uh, they will catch you because they are going to do a, a follow-up. Uh, you know, if not them, Revenue Canada, CRA will file to do this and say, wait a second, wait a second, you know, you had two sources of income, or wait a minute, you had a chance for that job and you said no. Uh, and, you know, you're going to say, well, I've already spent the money, you have to pay it back. Uh, you don't want to put yourself in a financial hole, do you? 
No, and, and you, I, I really believe you risk doing that. If uh, Again, once the reason not to work uh, is, an, is a voluntary reason, it's a choice that you're making because you prefer CERB than to go to work and get paid, uh, I think very likely you will, you'll have to pay back the CERB benefit. And not only that, uh, I think an employer can very well take the position that if you don't come back, we're treating you as having abandoned your employment. Um, and you're not going to get any severance pay whatsoever. So if you have concerns, there are, you know, I don't know how much you want to get into it. There are many reasons why someone could refuse to go back, at least. Well, let me give you another scenario from a, a lot of the callers I've heard over the last week since you and I talked last Wednesday, Andrew, uh, saying, I don't want to go back to it. And the, the, the number of I heard was, well, some from salons, some from restaurants in particular, saying, I'm not, I don't think it's safe yet. Uh, I'm, I don't want to catch the virus. I'm not so sure that, you know, that it's going to start spreading again, and I don't want to be a victim of the second wave. I, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, this that, that, that curve is not just leveled off. I want to see it start to decrease before I feel safe. Is, is that a legitimate reason to say, I, I just can't go back yet? Uh, okay, so in and of itself, someone's concerns about getting sick or getting someone else sick uh, is not going to substantiate or justify their decision not to return. And I know a lot of people are scared, right? So, um, sorry, excuse me. I know a lot of people are scared and they, you know, no matter what safety measures are put in place, they're going to be scared. But at the end of the day, that kind of fear uh, is not enough to refuse a return to work. So as long as an employer is ensuring that there's a safe work environment for that person to return to, uh, they'd have an obligation to go back. Now, if that individual, if you work at a salon or you work at a restaurant uh, and you have legitimate safety concerns with respect to the environment that you're working in, like if, if you work at a salon and all the chairs are, uh, you know, the, the haircutting chairs where, you know, where the people sit, if they're all three or four feet apart, not six feet apart, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to work next to the person beside me, that's too close, you know, by all means, go to your employer and ask your employer, what are you doing to ensure that we're safe? What protocols are in place, you know, based on what, uh, you know, all the, all the information that's out there about the, you know, the safety measures that should be in place. Here are my concerns about coming back. Can you please explain, employer, what you're going to do to alleviate my concerns? So, you know, before being called back, for sure, you have the right to canvas um, you know, what measures are in place and trying to make sure the employer does an objectively uh, adequate job about putting safety mechanisms in place, whether it be sanitary stations, providing with uh, personal protective equipment, providing, uh, you know, hand washing stations, ensuring that there's social distancing measures in place. For sure, canvas these things. But if the employer is doing what it needs to do, if it's putting the measures in place, and no matter what the employer do, does, you're just simply scared about returning. Uh, that is not going to be enough necessarily at all to justify uh, a refusal to return to work. I, I think probably a corollary to that is uh, if for a, a business like that to reopen, uh, what the premier is telling us anyway is that they're going to have to meet standards via uh, social distancing and things of that nature uh, before they'll even allow them to. And there are going to be inspections, he says. So I mean, the employees, I guess, should take some solace in that, that there are going to be some, some checks and balances into this. A uh, lot of other scenarios in this. And I want to, again, to go back to work. And this is a problem I know uh, that we've talked about in the past when it comes to things like mat leave. 
when you go back to work after a bat leave or now after this because of the shutdown, uh, are you entitled to have the exact same job, the exact same position, or just employment again? I mean, that, that's a function of whether or not there's a contract or policy or practice in place uh, regarding the flexibility of an employer to change your duty. So many people, when they, when they commence employment, they sign a contract, and the contract that says, you know, the employer has the right to change your duties and responsibilities and yada, yada, yada. Um, so it, it does it's going to be an individualistic assessment, right? So, and it also depends on how fundamental the changes are. So first thing would be is to, the first thing to do would be to look at contracts, look at policies, see if the employer has kind of that wiggle room to change your duties and responsibilities. If so, how much, if that's not really stated and it's, you never signed a contract, your job was always the same. Uh, you worked for 10 years, you did the same duties, duties, A, B, C, D, and E. And um, there's nothing in writing that permits the employer to change your responsibilities. Then if the employer does attempt to change fundamentally parts of your job, uh, you could treat that as what's called a constructive dismissal. You could treat that as uh, being terminated, right? But mm-hmm. that, that said, you know, in light of the environment that we're in, you know, if you used to do, do duties A, B, C, D, and E, and you're going to go back and do duties A, B, C, D, and F, it might not amount to a constructive dismissal. It might not amount to a fundamental change um, in terms of, you know, that would justify you treating your employment as being terminated, right? So obviously there's going to be a little wiggle room simply by virtue of the fact that, you know, an employer's business has changed because like most employers, their business has changed because of COVID, right? Like, especially with the return to work, there's going to be a whole, you know, imagine that there's a return to work. A lot of the return is going to be based on, um, you know, educating employees about safety concerns and what they have to do and yada, yada, yada. And those are things they never used to have to do before, right? So mm-hmm. there are going to be some changes. Uh, really, the question is how drastic are those changes? And um, if they are significant and you as an employee has concerns that you're now doing a totally, you know, if you used to be an accountant and now they're trying to make you mop the floors. Obviously, that's an extreme example. But if there's something quite significant like that, I would recommend speaking to an employment lawyer about, you know, what options are available to you, including treating your employment as being terminated and and Uh, pursuing a severance package. With Andrew Goldberg uh, from uh, San Francisco to Market LLP Employment Lawyers, uh, always some great advice that we're getting from you. One of the other things that I'm hearing a lot about, too, that I wanted to get your responses. I mean, you're working from home these days. I'm working from home these days. A lot of people are doing that because of the COVID situation. Uh, when things start to ease up and the evolved, uh, do you have uh, the right to go to your employer and say, look, this has been working out pretty well for the last five or six weeks. Why don't I just stay working at home? Or do you have to go and do what your employer says uh, vis-a-vis back to the workplace? To keep, the thing to keep in mind is that working from home is not – an inherent right. Like you as an individual do not have the right to work from home. It's a privilege to work from home, um, generally speaking. So if you, if it was working well and you go to your employer and you say, Hey, this was working really well. Can I continue? You know, you can make a business case for it. You can say, I've been super productive. Look how productive I've been. I've been over this time. Um, I think it's working out very well for me. Maybe we can work out some kind of part-time work from home. And, and present that to your employer and ask. But absolutely not. You do not have the right to work from home if the employer requests that you go back, unless, for instance, 
you have family care obligations, then an employer can consider and should consider uh, having you continue to work from home and to accommodate your child care obligations. Now, the thing is, you know, at the end of the day, there's employment laws, and that's all fine and dandy, but and that's what I'm, I do every day, and that's what our firm does every day is, is deal with the employment law and the issues. But there, at the end of the day, businesses are businesses. They're motivated by money. They're motivated by bottom line. And if you make the business case that working from home is making sense, an employer might just allow you to do it, right? So, you, you know, think about what the merits are. Think about why it's been advantageous, um, especially if you have childcare obligations. If the options are, the employer says, you know, if you say to your employer, I still have child care obligations, I'd like to continue to work from home. That's the only way I can continue working. And the employer says, nope, too bad. Everyone's coming back to work. You can go on an unpaid leave of absence. I mean, wouldn't the employer prefer that that individual work at home as opposed to doing nothing? I mean, that way that person can earn money and the employer can have a productive employee that's doing something. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it's going to come down to kind of business rationale. And one last thing to keep in mind is, especially for smaller-ish to mid-sized companies, a lot of companies have had to pour tons of money into beefing up their IT infrastructure to support having people work from home. I mean, their, their servers couldn't support everyone working from home. You know, people didn't have the monitors, keyboards, whatever is necessary to work from home. So now the employer had to shell out a whole bunch of money at the beginning of this COVID pandemic, and that's money spent. So if, if you're an employer... Maybe you have to think about as well, you know, I put the money into this capital. Why not allow people to continue to take advantage of it, right? So from a business perspective, I think it can make a lot of sense. From a legal perspective, no, you just you do not have the inherent right to continue to work from home in and of itself. Absolutely so many, not. So many questions, uh, which is why I'm so glad that you're, you're able to join us every week, Andrew, to do this. Uh, best advice, though, is if you do have some concerns and questions about returning to work and some of these things, not a bad idea to contact and, and have a discussion with an employment lawyer. Uh, Sam Fru to Mark and LLP, employmentlawyer.ca is uh, the webpage you can go to to get all this information, and uh, uh, they'll steer you in the right direction. Uh, As always, Andrew, thanks so much for this. Uh, I guess we'll talk again next week. Take care. Yeah, you as well. Take care. Great having uh, Andrew on the program here, and I know we always get a flood of questions like this, and we'll save them up until uh, we get him back again next Wednesday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another point that we brought up when we had the premier on the show a few days ago uh, were long-term care facilities, and, and the premier was quite, uh, I think, adamant about the fact that something needs to be done. If, if COVID has done anything about long-term, it's, it's shone the light on the fact that there have been major concerns with long-term care facilities for quite some time in this province. Uh, but the number of fatalities because of COVID-19 in these facilities, I think, has really underscored that something needs to be done. Well, the SEIU Healthcare calls, uh, which is a union that represents many of the uh, the uh, healthcare workers, about 60,000 frontline healthcare workers, uh, is calling for not just a public inquiry, but also criminal investigations into the COVID-19-related deaths in these long-term care facilities. Uh, as to whether or not the government's going to adhere to that, I don't know. But uh, they're really singing from the same sheet as a lot of us that something needs to be done about this. Joining us to talk about this issue is uh, Jana Ray, who is the Chief Membership Officer with CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired People. Jana, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, thanks for having me on the air today, Bill. I appreciate it. Well, this is this is something we have been talking about for years, and uh, to do with the, the level of care, the the facilities, the staffing, uh, the way that staff are treated, the the things that staff are given there, and and 
you know, and we've had some tragedies in the past, as you well know, of course, at CARP, and, and there's a big furor about that, and once in a while there's an inquiry, but things tend to fade. Now we're hearing from the, the Premier and from the Prime Minister that something needs to be done. Uh, some would suggest that's too little too late, but it's time we had this discussion, isn't it? It absolutely is. You know, you're, you're, you're bang on in terms of how long we've been talking about this, and this is even well before... Uh, the wet lawfer inquiry that occurred. Mm -hmm. And uh, even from that inquiry, you know, there were some 91 recommendations that were made and not even a quarter have been implemented. Um, And so, you know, we're we're really talking about two things here. You know, what's been sort of the ongoing challenges within the long-term care uh, settings? And then, of course, what's really been exposed through the pandemic response for COVID-19? Therein lies the problem, and uh, I, I know that the government, as we say, has been aware of this, and uh, I, the, the health minister, Christine Elliott, spoke about this just a, a couple of days ago. Here's what she said. There are a number of issues, and we have been working alongside our, our colleagues to make sure that people can stay safe and healthy in the long-term care homes in the future. Uh, laudable terms and, and a laudable thing to say but uh you know that's that's talking the talk now we need to have them walk the walk jana we can be here for the next hour just listing some of the concerns here and it goes to staffing levels and i'll pick one i want to get your your read on this uh one of the reasons they said the spread was so intricate so detailed of course in, in these uh, facilities was because many of the staff were working two or three jobs and the initial response if i recall from the government then was well we can't let them do that we're going to stop them from doing that why look at the root cause why are they doing it that there's a staffing problem here that nobody seems to want to address yes a chronic staffing shortage and we hear that not just in ontario but right across the country and uh and this is something that also has to be solved uh in 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 terms of the kind of staffing and the minimums that need to be you know within those homes whether it's minimum hours uh spent per resident or if we're talking about minimum numbers of people that are working um you know sort of those ratios which neither are actually there's no minimum that's been required uh by the regulation at this time well and that there's so many facets to the staffing situation i mean first of all they don't some of the people i mean they they have to work two or three different facilities because they need that to make that kind of money uh, because yeah. they're not paid enough, they're not getting enough hours, uh, and, and uh, you know, these are private facilities, and I know there's a bottom line that needs to be concerned, or they are anyway, And but at, at what cost? I mean, I, that's the question we have to ask ourselves with with COVID-19, at what cost? I saw a statistic yesterday that, that just, I think, put this into perspective. Uh, in, in, it's just in Ontario. On a per capita basis, we had more deaths from COVID-19 in long-term care facilities than any other jurisdiction in North America. That's that's not something to be proud of. No, certainly not. And and what's even more uh, unsettling is that it's, it was really preventable. You know, it's not like we didn't see this coming. Um, even from the warnings that were sort of shifting from, you know, various countries that were experiencing their height of, of COVID-19 before it even really hit within Canada, uh, we knew that it was you know, affecting an older population more so. We knew that it was happening in their, uh, you know, senior residences and, and their settings there. So, you know, knowing all of this, why wasn't PPE stopped up on um, in, initially? Uh, you know, why weren't there efforts made to fully understand and, and sort of uh, have a plan for mobilizing a quarantine within a long-term care home to reduce that rate of transmission? Like, lots of different warning signs were certainly uh, and we were getting that information from the World Health Organization as well as those other countries. And and in reality, we it's, it seems like we did nothing. 
Well, therein lies the problem. You know, there was a lot of talk and not a whole lot of action when it came to these sort of situations. And now, all of a sudden, we're, we're looking at the death toll here and, and, and wondering, hey, how could we allow this to happen? Because we, the, the situation, the scenario had been created over the last number of years for something like this to happen. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, and that's just the thing is, is even when you look historically, for example, and you're looking at things like SARS and MERS and, and that kind of thing, you know, we were all very optimistic even at the initial onset of COVID-19 because we knew that we had this benefit of testing, whereas in the past, these other, uh, you know, these other uh, pandemics, they were not the same, like we didn't have the same access to testing. We couldn't confirm who was infected versus who wasn't. And, and we were told initially that this was a real game changer. But even that testing uh, process was really prioritized towards acute care. It wasn't really, um, you know, at all sort of implemented within the long-term care setting. Of course, the results uh, take a little bit too long in order to actually affect a quarantine situation and, and, you know, to confirm the results and be able to do something. Um, we're looking now to, uh, we're really looking at with hope to find a, a rapid testing and rapid results solution. But I understand that there's even complications around that at this time. And, uh, and so it's, you know, a lot of these things that we were really hoping for at the beginning of and the, and the onset that were going to be the key differentiators that were going to allow us to really get a handle on this early unfortunately have uh it, it hasn't it hasn't materialized in the way that we hoped it would and when you hear some of the stories from some of these personal care workers uh they were not given the tools necessary when this whole thing started you mentioned about the the personal uh, protection uh, equipment and things of that nature and that means masks gloves uh, gowns whatever the situation might be we know hospitals weren't equipped for it and certainly these facilities weren't equipped for it uh, these these are questions that need to be addressed Yes, 100%. Again, you know, knowing that it was coming and seeing sort of that wave coming, you know, Canada had its projections, um, you know, and those have been sort of, you know, and they've been like looked at and re-examined time over time. But at the same time, you know, we knew that was coming. So why wasn't the call made for the collection of and stockpiling of within the organizations that would need it the most? around that PPE um, to, to actually ensure that it would be available to, you know, all of these frontline healthcare workers. I mean, these are the people that are working with our country's most vulnerable populations. And, you know, and they're day in, day out. This is very direct contact care. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not hard to determine, like, how that rate of transmission would be so aggressive within a long-term care facility. And these are the people that need that, that equipment, you know, every day. They need it every day. And they need a fresh supply of that every day. They need to be able to change that equipment every day um, and between patients and that sort of thing to reduce that rate of transmission. But when you're talking about, for example, a basic accommodation in a long-term care home and you've got a quad room, and there are those that still exist today in many homes across Ontario, and you're talking about a quad space where four people are in a room and one person's infected, and that person is not effectively removed from that space because there's nowhere else for them to go within that home, uh, that's it. Now all three of the remaining people in that room are also infected. You can just guarantee it. And oftentimes so are the PSWs. I know there were a number of uh, public yeah. or personal service workers that contracted. The, one death, as far as I know, but uh, a number of people that, that had to go off work because of that, uh, and uh, not just quarantine, but actually suffered many of the symptoms that were going on with this. So where do we go from here? I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that we've learned. Uh, I, the premier was, was quite uh, on our program a couple of days ago when I had him on here. He, he talked about the fact, and I think we all know, that his mother lies in one of these facilities, and he saw the angst that was going on 
on uh, with his family. And first of all, the fact that they couldn't visit, and that's that's uh, something that needs to be addressed. But the fact that the facility itself didn't seem to be prepared for this. Uh, oftentimes, uh, <laughs> a lot of change does not occur uh, in situations like this until the people that can enact that change actually experience some of the angst that we feel. Uh, the fact that the Premier's family is going through this now may well be the catalyst, I think, to get some real action on this. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, as a, anytime we, you know, anyone launches an inquiry, and certainly CARP has very seriously considered uh, launching a public inquiry as well. But of course, uh, you know, timing is critically important, and we are still in the middle of this pandemic. And so we need to also prioritize where that response lies and, and really where we should be putting that 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 effort right now as we are still uh you know weathering this storm however uh you know in in terms of what we could be looking at you know and 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 forward looking you know we need to not only be able to you know make assessments of these homes and and do those inspections and make sure that things are up to par and that certainly we have plans in place and there are strategic and well thought out plans in place to be able to cope with these kinds of scenarios in the future but also we we we, we need to make sure that that's done but that those those inspections actually have consequences. Um, you know, that's what we're finding, too, is that the challenge is, sure, an inspection takes place, and, of course, the, the effort is to get that home back online, back up and running, um, and, and, and to do that. But there aren't any real consequences, whether it's, a, like, for example, a private operator or those kinds of things. Um, like, where are the consequences? Because the need is so great to maintain long-term care, and we already know the, the chronic shortages that we have in beds. Um, as well, where are the where are the consequences, and how can we actually have some teeth to this fight, if you will, um, around uh, making sure that in fact uh, we are able to effectively quarantine individuals, and we can protect the staff that are working frontline with these folks every day. Well, you've put your finger on one of the key elements there, and it's oversight. And and I did bring it up to the premier that uh, there was a severe cutback in the budget last year uh, about the, the 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 oversight that goes into long-term care facilities. And in fact, as it turned out in 2019, I think there were only nine inspections carried out nine, in, across yes, in, in the whole province. In the whole province, yes, only nine inspections, and that was because of budget cutbacks. When you when you have a situa- situation like this, and these problems fester like this, Jana, what did they expect was going to happen? Well, you know, and that's our question, too. You know, all of us are raising a lot of questions, and uh, we just want to make sure that, uh, that you know, out of these questions, that it's not just a conversation, that we're not just writing some, some you know, big recommendations paper and nothing is done. I think, you know, uh, while, while really, really unfortunate that COVID-19 has exposed all of these uh, you know, these issues and certainly these, uh, you know, the, the fact that, frankly, the protection was were inadequate across the board. At the same time, at least they're now exposed. They're really exposed, uh, you know, even beyond what they were before. And uh, and I, I really don't think that, you know, the residents of Ontario and certainly even across the country where we're hearing similar stories, I don't think that people are going to let this go. I think at this point, they're really going to challenge the government and ask for there to be action taken. I mean, if the municipal government in Toronto or Hamilton said, uh, yeah, I know we're supposed to do restaurant inspections, but, you know, we're trying to save money. We, we only did eight or nine uh, in the whole city. We'd be livid. We'd be apoplectic. How could you possibly do this and put our health at risk? But it happened in long-term care facilities. Those are our loved ones. Those are our, our parents, our grandparents. And, you know, and this has been going on under our nose. Now, maybe maybe unaware, but at the same time, now that we know about this, uh, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of folks are going to be demanding action here.
they're lucky that uh, they have folks like CARP that, uh, that are going to advocate for this, Jaina. Uh, keep fighting the good fight on this. And we've got a commitment now from the health minister and the premier that they are going to do something about this. And I guess we have to hold their feet to the fire and make sure they follow through. Well, thank you. We definitely will. We're right at the forefront of it. And we're certainly you bet uh, you are. fighting that good fight. Appreciate that, Bill. Thank you. Jana, thanks for the call. Uh, anytime that, uh, that you want to have a platform to talk about these things, give us a holler, okay? Okay, great. Thanks so much. Take care. Jana Ray, Chief uh, Membership Officer with CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired People. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.